I am recording in a new room because we're in Pennsylvania. And so I'm recording at this little vanity desk, which is something. <laughs> and but there's a mirror right in front of me. So I feel very vain because it's just like I have, I'm just looking at myself while I'm recording with you. It's it's something. <laughs> that is something. <laughs> so, you know. Fun times. Pro podcast tip. You know, just stare at yourself while you chat, while you record. I mean, if that works for you, you know, plenty of people in the gym have the mirrors up. So podcasting is sort of like exercising in a way. And I think it makes sense. I appreciate the generosity. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed, a weekly podcast from your friends at ThoughtBot about developing great software. I'm Chris Toomey. And I'm Steph Vicari. And together we're here to share a bit of what we've learned along the way. So Steph, what's new in your world? Hey, Chris. So I have a a funny slash emotional story (laughs) that Mm. I'm going to share with you first because I feel like it kind of encapsulates how life is going at the moment. So we've officially moved from South Carolina to North Carolina. I feel like I've been talking about that for several episodes now, but this is this is it. We have finally vacated all of our stuff out of the South Carolina house and relocated to North Carolina. And once we got to North Carolina, we immediately had to then leave town for a couple of days. And normally Utah, our dog, has stays with an individual in South Carolina, someone that we found to trust and love. And he has a great time, and I just know he's happy. But we didn't have that this time. So I had to find just a boarding facility that had really high reviews that I felt like I could trust him with. I didn't even have time to, like, take him for a day to test it out. It was one of those, like, I got to show up and just drop him off and hope this goes well. So I did. And everything looks wonderful. Like, the, the facility is very clean. I had, like, a list of things to look forward to make sure it was a good place. But it's the first time leaving him somewhere where he's going to spend significant time in, like, a kennel that has, like, indoor-outdoor access. And as I walked away from him, I started to cry. And I just thought, oh, no, this is embarrassing. I'm that dog mom who's going to start crying in this boarding facility as she's leaving her dog for the first time. So I put on my shades and I managed to make it through like the checkout process. But then I went to my truck and just sat there and like cried for 15 minutes and called Uh, my husband and was like, I'm doing the right thing, right? Like, tell me this is okay because I'm having a moment. And uh, finally got through that moment. But then I even called you because you and I were scheduled to chat. And I was like, I am not in a place that I can chat right now. I think I told you when you answered the phone, I was like, everything's fine. But I sound like the world's ending or I sound like a mess. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I had like two hours of like where I just couldn't stop crying. I partially blame pregnancy hormones. I'm, I'm going to go with that as my escape route for now. So I feel like that's that's been life lately. It might just life's been a little a little overwhelming, and that felt like the cherry on top. And that was the moment that I broke. Update: He's doing great. I've gotten pictures of Utah. He's having a wonderful time at camp. It seems <laughs> it was just me, his his mama, who was having trouble. Well, you know, reasonable to worry, and life's dialed up to eleven and all of that. But uh, yeah, I will say, uh, even though you led the conversation with everything's fine. Your tone of voice did not imply that everything was fine. So when I when I eventually came to understand what we were talking about, I hope I was kind in the moment. But I was like, oh, okay, we're okay. Well, this is fine. We're fine. I'm so sorry you're feeling <laughs> terrible right now. But okay, we're fine. For me, there was a palpable moment of like, okay, I, I've my stress is now back down a little bit. But I'm glad that things are going well and that Utah is having a fun vacation. 
Yep, he seems to be doing fine. I've calmed down. Uh, you know, life, life, as you said, life's been dialed up lately. On a less emotional uh, note and something that's a little bit more technical, I had a really great conversation with another ThoughtBotter where we were talking about testing and the idea of when you learn testing, it's often very focused on like, you're, you have this object and it has a method and so you're going to write a unit test for this particular method and it's very isolated, very specific as to the thing that you're looking to test versus in reality, when you pick up tickets, you don't have that scope. Like it is so broad, you have to figure out what feature you're implementing, figure out how to test it. And it feels like this mismatch between how a lot of people learn to test and learn TDD versus then how we actually practice it in the wild. And so we had a fun conversation around when you are presented with a ticket like that and you have no idea how you're going to implement a feature, how do you get started with testing? And when do you write your first test? Do you TDD? Do you BDD? Or do you PDD? That last one I made up, it stands for Panic Driven Development. Development, but it's what's your approach to how do you actually then get into the get to the point where you can write a test? And I have a couple thoughts, but I'm really curious, how does that flow work for you? What have you learned throughout the years to then help yourself write that first test? Or where do you start? Well, this is an interesting question. I like this one. I think it varies. And I think there's a lot of dogma around TDD as a practice. And I think it is super useful to sort of break that apart and hear different individual stories of it. I know there are plenty of folks who are like, TDD is just not a thing and whatnot. And I'm certainly not in that camp. But I also don't TDD 100% of the time because sometimes I'm not super clear on what I'm doing or I'm in more of an exploratory phase. That said, I think there's a, I want to answer the question somewhat indirectly, which is I know how to test most of the code that I work on now as a web developer in a Rails application, because I've done most of the things a bunch of times. And the specifics may be different, but the like, I have to integrate with this external system, and I have to build an API client or whatever, like I know how to do that. And there is a public API of some class that I will be exercising against. And so I can write tests against that. Or I know that the user is going to click a button, and then something needs to happen. And so I can write that test and it fails and then it starts to push me towards the implementation. There are also times where it's actually quite hard to get the test to lead you in the right direction and you have to know what hop to make. And so sometimes I just do that. But yeah, rolling back a little bit, I think there is a certain amount of experience that is necessary. And I think one of the critical things that I, I want to share with folks that are potentially newer to testing overall is that it is actually quite hard. You have to understand your system and how you're going to approach it, you know, one step removed, or it's like, you know, a game of chess where you're thinking a couple moves ahead. You have to like understand it in a deeper way. And so if testing is difficult, that might just be totally reasonable at this point. And as you come to see the patterns within a Rails application or whatever type of application you're working on over and over, it becomes easier to test. But if testing is hard, that may not mean like how do, how do i phrase this there's like an imposter syndrome story in here of like if you're struggling with testing it may not be that something's fundamentally broken you just may need a couple more chances to see that sort of thing play out uh, and so for me in most cases i tend to know sort of where to start or when not to that's all like i feel fine not testing when i don't test most of the time i will eventually get things under test coverage such that i feel confident in that and whenever i have one of those moments i will stop and look at it and say like why didn't i know how to test this from the front like from the start uh, but it's it's rare at this point for things to be like truly exploratory there's always some outer layer that i can wrap around but like i know x needs to happen when y occurs so how do i instrument the system in that way but yeah, those are some thoughts. What are your What are your thoughts? I mean, or, or does that does what I said sound reasonable here? 
Yeah, I really like how you highlighted that pausing for reflection. That was something that I didn't initially think of, but I really like that to then go back to be like, okay, revisiting myself a couple days or however earlier when I first started this, now I can see where I've ended up. How could I have made that connection sooner as to where I was versus the test I ended up with? Or perhaps I recognizing that I couldn't have gotten there sooner, that I needed that journey to help me get there. So I really like the idea of pausing for reflection because then it helps cement any of those learnings that you have made during that time. Also, the other part where you mentioned the user clicks a button and something happens. That's where I immediately went with this. I also like that you highlighted that TDD is has that bit of dogma. And I don't always TDD. I, I do when I can and it helps me, but it has to be a tool versus something that I just do 100% of the time. But with more of that BDD approach or that that very high level, like user level integration test of where if I need to pull data from an API and then show it to the user, okay, I know I can at least start with like a high level test of I want the user to then see some data on a page. And that will lead me down some path of errors. It might help me implement a, a route and a controller and then like a show action. So it will at least help me get started. Or even if it doesn't give me helpful enough errors, it at least serves as my guideline of like, this is my North Star. This is where I'm headed. So then if I need to revisit, okay, what's the thing that I'm focused on at the moment? I can go back and be like, okay, I'm focused on achieving this. What's the next smallest step I can take to get there? The other thing that I've learned over time is I've, I've given myself the chance to be messy because I, I got so excited about the idea of like unit testing and writing small, fast tests that I would often try to start with small objects and then work my way backwards into like, okay, I have this one object that does this thing and one object that like, let's use a concrete example. So like one object that knows how to communicate with the API and one object that knows how to then parse and format the data I want. And then something else that's in is going to present that data to the user. But I found when I started with small objects, I would get a little lost and I wasn't always great at bringing them together. So I've taken the opposite approach of where if I'm really not sure where I'm headed and I'm in that more exploratory phase, or even just that first initial pass of a feature, I will just start messy. So if I am pulling data from an API, I need to show it to a user on a screen, I'll just dump it in the controller if I need to. I'll put it all there together. And then once I actually have something that is passing or I have something appearing on the page, then I will start to say, okay, now that I can see what I need and I can see the pieces that I've written, how can I then start to extract this into smaller objects? And now I can start writing unit tests for that data. So that is something that has helped me is just start high, keep it high, be messy. And until then you start to see some of the smaller objects that you can pull out. Yeah, I think uh, there's there's something that you were just saying there that clicked for me of we didn't start with the why of TDD. And I don't think we've talked about why we believe in TDD in a while. So this feels like a thing worth saying. Uh, it's not good just because it's good or we don't believe it's good just because that's what we say. For me, it is because it anchors us outside of the code, sort of it starts to think of it from the user perspective or some outer layer. So like even if you're unit testing some deeply nested class within your application, there's still an outer layer. There's still a user of that class. And so thinking about the public API, I think is really useful. And then the further out you get, the better that is. And I believe strongly in thinking from sort of the outside in on these sort of things. And then the other thing you said of allowing for refactoring. And if we have tests, then it's so much easier to sort of, I, I totally 100% agree with like, I start messy, start very messy. Uh, I wanted to pretend I was going to be like, oh, I'm so, Steph, I can't believe this. But no, of course I start messy. Why would you Why would you start trying to do the hard thing first? No, get something that works. But then having the test coverage around that makes it so much easier to go through those sequential refactoring steps versus 
if you have to write the code correctly up front and then add test coverage around that, it sort of inverts that whole thing. And so although it may take a little bit longer to write the tests up front, I do exactly what you're describing of like, I write the tests that tell some truth about the system and constrain the system to, you know, do that thing. And then I can have a messy implementation that I can iteratively refactor over and over and I can extract things from and then I can tell a more concise testing story about those. And so it really is both that like the higher level perspective, I think is super useful. And then the ability to refactor under that test coverage is also very useful. And it it makes my job easier because I can start messy. I love starting messy. It's so much better. Yeah. And I think former me had the idea that for me to do TDD properly meant that I had these small encapsulated objects that I wrote unit tests for. And yes, that is the goal. I do want that, but that doesn't mean I have to start there. Like that is something that then I can work my way towards. That also falls in line with the adage from Sandy Metz that the wrong abstraction is more costly than no abstraction. And so I'd rather start with no abstractions and then start to consider, okay, how can I actually move this out into smaller objects and then test it from there? There's also something that I heard that I haven't done as often, but I really like the idea. It feels very freeing, is that when you do get started and if you write your first test, if you write a test and it helps you make some progress, but then you come back to it later and you're like, you know, that test doesn't really add value or it's not helping me anymore, just thank it and delete it and and move on. Like you don't have, just because you wrote it doesn't mean it needs to stay. So if it provided some benefit to you and helped you through that journey of adding the feature, then that's wonderful. But don't be timid about deleting it or changing it so that it does serve you because otherwise it's just going to be this toxic test that gets merged into the main branch and it's going to be untrustworthy or maybe it's fussy and hard to please or it's just really not the supportive test that you're looking for. And so then you can turn it into more of a uh, supportive test and make it fit your goals instead of just clinging to every test that we've written. I like the framing of tests as scaffolding. They help you build up the structure, but then at the end, you know, some of the scaffolding gets ripped away and and thrown out. And I do think, again, testing ends up in this weird place. The dogmatic thing that we were talking about earlier feels very true. And I've noticed, particularly on larger teams, folks being very hesitant to delete tests, just like that feels like sacrilege. Of course, you can't delete tests. The tests are how we know it's true, which is true, but you you can interrogate that. You can see like, how true is it? And every test has a cost, a maintenance burden, runtime, et cetera. You probably know well, Steph, about uh, having test suites that take a bunch of time to run and then maybe wanting to spend a little bit of time trying to uh, reduce that overall time. And so it is, there's always going to be a trade-off there. Actually, someone reminded me of an anecdote recently. Uh, I joined a project and most of the test suite or all of the test suite was commented out because it was flaky or intermittent. And I was just like, oh, I'm going to delete that. And people are like, you're what? I'm like, it's commented out. We're not using it. Let's tell the truth. Git will have it. We can go back and get it. But let's tell the truth with what we're like. This commented out test suite is almost worse in my mind than having nothing there. The nothing feels painful, right? Let's experience that. Whereas the commented out stuff, well, it's like, well, we have a test suite. It's just commented out. It's like, no, you don't have a test suite at all. <laughs> That is not what's going on here, but it was. Uh, there were other thought butters on the project that um, poked a good amount of fun at me when they were like, "The first thing you did on this project was delete the test suite." As like, yeah, I don't know, I was, I was feeling spicy that day or something. But I, I think the test suite needs to serve the work that we're doing in the same way that everything else does. And so, occasionally, yeah, deleting tests is absolutely the right thing, and then probably add back some more. But it's funny how that reaction exist. And and I've done it before myself where like, if you see commented out code, and you put up a, a PR to remove it, I feel like most people are going to be like, yeah, 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 that's great. Let's let's get rid of this. It's clearly not in use It's commented out. But then removing a skipped 
test then has people like, well, but that test looks like it could be valuable and we're going to fix it. And it's like, all I can go back is that silly is a silly example of like, you know, you've got like your skinny jeans one day, I'm going to fit into like those skinny jeans. And so one day I'm going to fix this test and it's going to serve the purpose and it's going to be the the me I want to be. Uh, and it is funny how we do that. Well, with code, we're like, sure, we can get rid of it. But with tests, we feel this clinginess to them where we want to we want to hold on to it and make it pass. And I think that sometimes has to do with the descriptions. Like there are test descriptions commented out that I've seen are like, user can log in or if uh, given a user without permission, they can't access. And it's like, oh, that sounds important. I'm now nervous to delete you versus fix you but you're still not actually running and providing value. And so then I have to negotiate with myself as to where do we actually go from here. But I do love the idea of deleting tests that are skipped because we should just let them go. Um, We either have to dedicate time to fix them or let them go and make that hard decision. The uh, critical idea of future me will have more time. Future me will be calm and, you know, we'll have worked through all the other bugs and uh, future discounting, as far as I understand it, as a formalization of the term. Uh, yeah, it's never true. Uh, I've only gotten busier over time, just broadly speaking. And that seems to be a truism in software projects as well. It's like, oh, we just have to write a bunch of features and then it'll be calm. Like, no, and probably I don't even think I'd want that. But now future me will not have more time. And so choosing the things that we do invest in versus not is tricky. But the idea that future me will have a lot of time or future us, probably not true. Well, and I think the story that I just shared at the beginning of our chat highlights that future me won't always be calm. <laughs> so let's work with what I've got. <laughs> let's not bank on that. Future Stephanie might be very emotional about dropping her dog off at boarding <laughs> for a couple of days. Future me might be very emotional about fixing this test. All right. Well, thanks for going on that journey with me. That's that's really helpful. I know you'd have some great insights there. Hey friends, and now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Scout APM. Scout APM is an application performance monitoring tool that's designed to help developers find and fix performance issues quickly. With an intuitive user interface, Scout will tie bottlenecks to source code so you can quickly pinpoint and resolve performance abnormalities like N plus one queries, slow database queries, and memory bloat. Scout also recently implemented external service monitoring, adding even more granularity when it comes to HTTP requests and API calls. So give Scout a try today with a free 14-day trial and experience firsthand why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend. And as an added bonus for Bike Shed listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. To learn more, visit scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. That's scoutapm.com forward slash bike shed. Uh, what's going on in my world? Uh, last week, we had our first ever Sagewell All Hands get together in person. Uh, many of us have met in person before, but not everyone. And so this was a combination celebration for our seed fundraising round, which had happened actually sometime and right at the end of last year. But due to COVID and the world and complexity, it was difficult to get everybody together. So that finally happened. And then we sort of grafted onto that celebration, that party that we were having, like, let's just extend a day in either direction and do some in-person working and all of that. Uh, and that was really great. Um, trying to find that ideal middle ground between like we are a remote team but there is definitely value in occasionally being in person particularly getting to know people but also just having some higher bandwidth conversations planning things like that that just feel different in person and so how do we how do we balance that 
and how do we be most productive and all that. But it was really great to meet the team, uh, you know, more so than I had on the internet. Uh, I get to spend some time in person and do some whiteboarding. I drew on a whiteboard with a team. We were all looking at the same whiteboard. We were in the same room. And I drew on a whiteboard, some entity relationship diagrams. It was awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was actually, it was super fun. It was one of those cases where we had built an assumption deeply into our code base. Uh, and suddenly, instead of having one of a thing, we may now have multiple of a thing. Uh, there's a wonderful blog post by Sean Wang called Preemptive Pluralization, which I think is based on a an episode of Ben Ornstein's podcast, The Art of Products, where Ben basically frame the idea of like, yeah, I've never regretted like pluralizing something earlier. A user has one account, they have multiple accounts, they just happen to have one at this time, etc. So we're in one of those and it was a great thing to be able to be in a room and whiteboard. Uh, I knew at the time when I did it way back when that I was making the wrong decision, but I didn't know exactly how in the shape. And so now we have to do that fun refactoring. So glad that we have a giant test suite that will help us with said refactoring. But yeah, so that, that was really great to be able to do in person. I think there can be so much value in getting together and getting to see your team. And like you said, have, like, have those high-level conversations and then just also getting to hang out. So that's, that's really nice to hear that reinforced since you're experiencing that same sort of like positivity from that experience. Do you think that's something that y'all will have going forward? Do you think you're going to try to get together like once a year, once a quarter, or there maybe it hasn't even been talked about? But I'm hearing that it was great and that maybe there will be some repeats. Yes. Yeah, I think I'm inclined to like quarterly at a minimum. Um, and maybe even slightly more than that. Some of us are centered around Boston, and so it's a little bit easier for us to pop in and um, work at a WeWork, that sort of thing. But I I think broadly getting the team together and having that be intentional, and personally I'm inclined to that being more social time than productive time, because I think that's the thing that is most useful in person is sort of building relationship and rapport and understanding folks better. I remember so pointedly when ThoughtBot would have the annual summer summit, and leading up to that, there was a certain amount of conversation, but there were also location-specific rooms, and a lot of the conversation happened like in the Boston Channel or whatnot. And then without fail, every year after the summer summit, suddenly there was this spike in cross-team chatter, like the Ruby room now had a bunch of people from San Francisco talking to Boston, talking to New York, et cetera. And it was just this like incredibly clear, I think we could actually like, I think at one point someone plotted the data and there's just this stepwise jump that would happen every time. And so that sort of connecting folks is really what I believe in there. And the, the more we're leaning into the remote thing, then the more I think this is important. So I think like quarterly is probably the lowest end that I would think of, but it might be more. Uh, and it's also a question of like, what shape does this take? Is it just us going and hanging out somewhere? Or are we productively trying to get together with a whiteboard? Or um, I think we'll figure that out as we go on. But it's definitely something that I'm glad we've done now, set the precedent for and we'll hopefully do more of moving on. Yeah, I always really love the ThoughtBot summits. In fact, we have one coming up. It's coming up in May, and this one's taking place in UK. But there's been some interesting conversations around summit because before it was the idea that everybody traveled, but typically they were in Boston. So for me, it was particularly easy because it was already where I lived. So then showing up for summit was no biggie. But with this one happening in UK and COVID and travel still being a concern, there's been more conversations around okay, this is awesome. People who want to get together can. There's these events going on, but there are people who don't want to travel, don't feel up to travel, have family obligations that then make it very difficult for them to like leave one partner at home with the kids. And I myself as an, am in that space where I thought really hard about whether I was going to travel or not. And I've decided not to just for 
personal reasons. But then it brings up the question of, okay, well, if we have a number of people that are going to be in person together, then what about the people who are remote? And the idea of running something that's hybrid is not something that we've really uh, figured out. But those that are remote, we're going to get together and figure out what we want to do and maybe what's our version of our remote summit since we're not going to be traveling But I I feel like that's definitely a direction that needs to be considered as teams are getting in person is if you do have people that can't make it, how can you still bring them in so it's an inclusive event, but respect to the fact that they can't necessarily travel. I don't know if that's a concern that every team needs to have, but it's one that I've been thinking about with our team. And then I know others at ThoughtBot we've been considering just because we do have such a disparate team and we want to make everybody comfortable and feel included. Yeah, uh, as with everything in this world, there there's always complexities and subtlety. Thankfully, for our first get together, we were able to get everyone um, into the same space. But I do wonder, especially as the team grows, even just scheduling, the logistics of it become really complicated. So then, you know, does the engineering team have get togethers that are slightly different? And then there's like one year, once yearly, a big get together of the whole team, or how do you manage that and dealing with family situations and all that? Like it is. Yeah, very much a complicated thing that thankfully was very straightforward for us this first time, but I fully expect that we'll have to be all the more intentional with it moving forward. Uh, and, you know, that's that's just the game. But switching gears ever so slightly, we did have a fun thing that we've worked on a little bit over the past few weeks. We finally landed it in the app, uh, but we were swapping out our masked input library that we were using. So this is for someone entering their birthday or a phone number or social security number or dates. Well, I guess I already said dates uh, and passwords I think we also use here but we have a bunch of different inputs in the app that behave specially and my goodness is this one of those things that falls into the category of oh yeah I assume this is a solved problem right we just have a library out there that does it and each library is like oh no all of the other libraries are bad I will come along and I will write the one library to solve all of the problems and then we'll be good and it's it is just such a surprisingly complicated space It feels like it should be more straightforward. And as I think about it, it's not. It's dealing with imperative interactions between a user and this input, and you need to transform it from what what happens when you hit the delete key. What do you want to happen? What's the most discoverable for every user? How do we make sure they're accessible? But my goodness, was it complicated. I think we're happy with where we landed, but it was an adventure. I'll be honest. That's something that I haven't given as much thought too. But I guess that's also I just haven't worked with that lately in terms of like a particular library that then masks those inputs. So I'm curious, which library were you using before? And then which one did you switch to? That's a critical piece of information that I've left off here. So uh, um, for the previous one, we were using one called Svelte Input Mask, um, which again, part of the fun here is you want to have bindings into whatever framework that you're using. Um, so Svelte Input Mask is what we were using before. We have now moved on to using iMask, which is not like the thing you wear on your face, but it is the letter I. So like Igloo, Mike, etc. I-M-A-S-K, iMask. Um, and so that is a lower level library. There are bindings to other things, but for TypeScript and other reasons, we ended up implementing our own bindings in Svelte, um, which is actually relatively straightforward. Uh, again, big fan of Svelte. It's a wonderful little framework, but that is what we're using now. And it is excellent. It's got a lot of features. We ended up using it in a slightly more um, simple version or implementation. It's got a lot of bells and whistles and configurations. We went sort of up the middle with it. But um, but yeah, we're on iMask, which also led to the very entertaining moment where it was interacting with our test suite in an interesting way. And so one of the developers on the team searched for Capybara iMask. And <laughs> I forget exactly how it happened. But if you Google search that, for some reason, the internet thinks an iMask is a thing that goes over your mouth. And so it's a Capybara 
like the animal face mask for it's very confusing but this got dropped into our slack at one point someone being like i searched for capybara eye mask and it got weird everybody so yeah that that was a fun little uh, side quest that we got to go on (laughs) i just googled it as you told me to and it's adorable yeah it's a face mask and it has a little capybara cartoon on the front of it yeah (laughs) there's many of these there like when i think of an eye mask though it's the thing that you put over your eyes to block the light if you want to sleep. But they're like an eye mask, like a mask that still keeps your eyes outside of it, or I don't understand the internet. It's a weird place. I think that was just Google saying, copy bar, eye mask. Nope, don't know eye, so let's put it together, copy bar, mask. <laughs> and that's what you got back. I guess, yeah, it's just a copy bar, mask, and I'm projecting the eye because I phonetically heard that for a while. And anyway, yes. But yeah, masked inputs, so complicated. This is adorable. I feel like there should be swag for when people move, like when people find things like this. This is the type of thing that then I stash and then wait for like their anniversary at the company. And then I I send it to them (laughs) to remind them of this time that we had together. (laughs) There was also a moment where you said I, you were explaining I's in the letter I, not E-Y-E for eye mask. And you said igloo. And my brain definitely short circuited for a minute to be like, did he just say igloo? Why did he say Mm. igloo? And it took me a minute to, oh, he's he's helping phonetically say that this is for the letter I. Yep. The NATO phonetic alphabet that if you don't explain that that's what you're doing, now I'm just naming random other objects in the world. Sorry. (laughs) And that's why I cut myself off halfway through. I'm like, now you're just naming stuff. This isn't helping. (laughs) Yes. The letter I, the letter M. (laughs) All of that was a delightful journey for me. And I was curious, I'm glad you brought up the test because I was just, I was curious if y'all are testing if things are getting obscured, but it sounds like y'all are. So which is what helped give you confidence as you were switching over to the new library. Yeah, although to name it, we're not testing at a terribly low level. This is a great example of where I believe in feature specs, like within our Capybara feature spec, we are saying, and then as a user, I type in this value into the input. And critically, although this input needs to have special formatting and presentational behavior, it should functionally be identical. And so it was a very good litmus test of, does this just work? And then actually our feature specs, they ended up in a race condition, which is just an annoying um, situation where like Capybara moves so quickly that it represented a user. But as we were having that conversation, I was like, wait a minute. Um, I know that users are slower than a computer, but is this actually an edge case that's real that we need to think about? And I think we did end up slightly changing our implementation. So our feature specs did in a way highlight that but mostly like our feature specs did not need to change to adapt to and then fill in the formatted input it was just fill in the input with the value and that did not change at all but it did put a tiny bit of pressure on our implementation to say like oh there is a there is a weird tiny little race condition here let's fix that and so we did uh, race conditions no fun at all Interesting. Okay, so y'all aren't actually testing. Like, there's no test that says, hey, that when someone types into this field, that then there should be this different UI that's present, because then we are obscuring the text that they are putting into this field. It was, as you mentioned, we're just testing that we changed over libraries and everything still works. So then do you just go through like that manual test of then you you go to like staging and then you test it that way? Uh, Yeah, that's a great question. Yes. Although, as you say it, it's interesting. I guess there's a failure mode here or that like our test suite does not enforce that the formatting masking behavior is happening, but it does test that the value goes through this input, gets submitted to the server, turns into the right type of value in the back end, all of that. 
So I guess this is an example of how I think about testing. Like that's the critical bit. And then it's a nicety. It's an enhancement that we have this masking behavior. But if that broke, as long as the actual flow of data is still working, the manner, like that can't break in a way that a user can't use. It sort of reminds me of the, the Mitch Hedberg joke. An escalator can never break and it can only become stairs. And so I'm sort of in that mindset here where like a masked input that you have proper feature spec coverage around can never quote unquote break. It can just become a plain text input. I love how much that resonates with me. And I now know that when I'm writing tests, I'm going to think back to Mitch Hedberg and be like, oh, but is it is it broken, broken? Or is it just now stairs? Because that's often how I will think of feature specs and how low level I will get with them. And this is on that boundary of like, Yes, it's important that we want to obscure that data that someone's typing in, but it's not broken if it's not obscured. So there's that balance of, I don't really want to test it. Someone will alert us. Like if someone, if that breaks, someone will alert us and it's not the end of the world. It's just unfortunate. But if they can't sign in or they can't actually submit the form, that's a big problem. So yes, I love this comparison now of, is it actually broken or is it just stairs <laughs> as, a, as a guideline for how much should we test at this feature level or test in general? What should we care about? I feel like this is a deep truth that I believed for a long time. And I think I probably somewhere in the back of my head connected it to this joke. But I feel really good that I formally made that connection now because I feel like it helps me categorize this whole thing. Sorry for the convenience as the joke. And so, yeah, that's where we're at. For anyone that's not familiar with uh, the comedian Mitch Hedberg, we'll be sure to include a link to that particular joke because it's delightful. And now it's connected to tech, which makes it just even more delightful. I only understand anything by analogy especially humorous analogy. So this is this is just critical to my progression as a developer and technologist. Yeah, I've learned over the years that there are two ways that I retain knowledge. It either caused me pain or it made me laugh. Otherwise, it's mundane and it gets filtered out. Laughter is my, of course, my favorite. I mean, pain sticks with me as well. But if it's something that made me laugh, I just know I'm, I'm far more likely to retain it and it's going to stick with me. And now a quick break to hear from today's sponsor, Studio 3T. When you're developing applications, it can often be a chore to work with your underlying data. Studio 3T equips you with a complete set of tools to work with MongoDB data. From building queries with drag and drop to creating complex aggregation pipelines, Studio 3T makes it easy. And now there's Studio 3T free, a free edition of Studio 3T, which delivers an essential core of tools. This means you can get started for free with Studio 3T free, and when you're ready, you can upgrade and enjoy even more features through Studio 3T Pro and Studio 3T Ultimate. The different editions unlock more tools and additional integrations with MongoDB, SQL, Oracle, and Sybase. You can start today by downloading Studio 3T free, which also includes a 30-day free trial of all the features of Studio 3T Ultimate, so you can try out some of the enterprise features as well. No credit card required. To start your trial, head to studio3t.com forward slash free. That's studio3t.com forward slash free. Well, on that wonderful framing there, uh, I think we should wrap up. What do you think? Let's wrap up. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm. This show is produced and edited by Mandy Moore. If you enjoyed listening, one really easy way to support the show is to leave us a quick rating or even a review in iTunes, as it really helps other folks find the show. If you have any feedback for this or any of our other episodes, you can reach us at at underscore bike shed or reach me on Twitter at S And I'm at Chris Toomey. Or you can reach us at host at bike shed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening to the bike shed and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.
This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.